Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly biotechnology podcast that's not just about biotechnology. Providing information to help you change hearts and minds. Moving innovations to application with communication. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with a emphasis on biotechnology and the good things that it can do for people and a planet. I'm Kevin Fulta, and this week we're going to talk about a, one of the sad stories of our time that really happened around an important discovery. When we think back to 1953, and actually before 1953, the 19, early 1950s, 1940s, and we look at one of the most pivotal races in science was this quest to understand the structure of the DNA molecule. And we know most of the story about how this happened and the people who grabbed the fame and the Nobel Prizes of the story. But there was a personality behind the scenes, unfortunately, who was grinding away and did most of the work that really laid the foundation for these discoveries, who history has not necessarily uh, given appropriate light. And that's something that I would like to correct today. Um, That was something that was covered by Dr. Mark Lawler back in uh, April 24th, 2018 issue of The Conversation Online. And uh, Dr. Lawler joins me today. He's a chair in translational cancer genomics at Queen's University in Belfast. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Lawler. Thank you. Very delighted to be here. I'm so happy that you're able to join me on this because I loved your article. Um, You know, uh, Rosalind Franklin, she's a name that is not a household name. She's somebody who maybe should be a household name. And uh, maybe we can help fix that a little bit today. So uh, here we go. Um, When we talk about uh, what she did and and understand uh, her contributions, we really have to talk about what was happening in the 1940s and 1950s with respect to uh, the structure of DNA. So could you give us a little bit of background on what was happening at the time and the different personalities that were involved? Absolutely, Kevin. So, I mean, it was a really exciting uh, time for understanding what was commonly called the secret of life. 
So that actual race to discover the structure of DNA was really a fundamental race that really captured the imagination of scientists across the world. And if you look particularly in the UK and in England, and particularly in Cambridge and in King's College London, there were two sort of groups that were more or less competing with each other. Um, and Rosalind Franklin eventually became part of those two groups. Um, but what we look at, if we look at the start, we look back and see, yes, we knew that there were different ways in which you could understand DNA and understand what made up the DNA, so the constituents of DNA. But what was really unclear was that how did DNA work? And really, that was the pivotal thing that needed to be understood. And famous scientists like Linus Pauling uh, were trying to understand it. Francis Crick um, in Cambridge, and also at that time, a young PhD student who had just gone into his first postdoc called Jim Watson was also involved. Um, but in King's College in London, um, Morris um, Wilkins was a, a researcher there uh, working with John Randall, and he had been doing some pivotal work as well on trying to tease out what was the structure of DNA. One of the things that was difficult was even trying to get a good sample of DNA to do, for example, X-ray diffraction studies on. And so at King's College and other places, you mentioned Randall, he was the father of radar, as I understand. And, and there was a lot of interesting ideas that were going on at the time about how you could use different types of energy or uh, maybe use even things like x-rays, right, to be able to resolve the structure of DNA. And so is that um, so how did all of these new technologies and ideas at King's College really influence Rosalind Franklin and, and her goals in that project. Yeah, well, Rosalind, one of the things from Rosalind, like she um, came to King's having worked before that. She actually started her PhD in Cambridge, um, but she didn't really get on that well with her supervisor. He wasn't really very helpful. And then she got a scholarship that allowed her to go to France. And it was actually in France where she learned how to be a really good X-ray crystallographer because that was what was critical and that was why she was so successful. If you look at what Rosalind did, yes, we talk about her involved in the structure of um, DNA. She was also involved in a number of other areas. In fact, in her short lifetime, 37 years, she probably packed in enough work and enough high-quality work to have actually achieved two Nobel Prizes. Sadly, she didn't receive any, uh, which is obviously something that was very disappointing and something we'll, we'll talk about uh, during the course of the podcast. Um, but it was critical that that skill set that she had in relation to being able to be a, an extremely good X-ray crystallographer. And she learned that through, first of all, working on coal, would you believe? And um, so she actually had a, a um, fellowship from, the, um, from the, the actual Coal Research Institute in the UK. And she brought that with her to France, worked in Paris. It was probably where she was the happiest, actually, and um, was actually in Paris, working with Jacques Marieu. And uh, it was really there that she started to develop the, the techniques that were so critical um, when we moved forward then and um, into the, the, when we really got into the race to actually just to unravel the double helix structure of DNA. And I know that you mentioned, you know, some of that her good times in France and that her move to King's College was, um, and actually her time at Cambridge, also did have a lot of uphill battles for her. And can you give some examples of some of the uh, issues that she faced as a woman in science, but also in a really uh, uh, a male-dominated area like x-ray crystallography and biophysics? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean, Franklin studied undergraduate at Newham College in Cambridge, 
Um, and while she enjoyed it there, it was incredible that although women had been admitted to Cambridge to, since 1869, they were not actually recognised as members of the university or entitled to a degree award. Can you imagine that? And so that really was like, I mean, it's incredible to think that now. And so although she worked there, she did the exact same work as any of the male uh, undergraduates, uh, they weren't actually recognized as proper members of the university. So from a relatively early age, she had challenges that she had to face. And then, as I said, um, when she she then decided initially to look at doing a a PhD uh, when she graduated from Newnham College in 1941, she started with Ronald Norrish in physical chemistry, famous, subsequent Nobel Prize winner, but he was quite argumentative and she found it quite difficult and he was also not very enthusiastic. At the time, he had other challenges himself, personal challenges, but it sort of meant that it wasn't a great place for her to actually work. And really getting that research position with what was called then the British Coal Utilisation Research Association, the Cura. I know it sounds a bit of a mouthful, but that's how she got the funding to do her PhD. And they also allowed her to do that between uh, Cambridge and London, which really suited her. And that was how she then was able to go to Paris on the back of that, because she started being recognized in the field as being somebody who understood coal and the structure of coal and carbon. Um, and that allowed her then to work with Jack Merring at the uh, Laboratoire Central des Services Chimiques de l'État in Paris. And really, that was where she became probably one of the world's experts in relation to X-ray crystallography, certainly in the UK. Um, she she brought that skill set back with her, having worked with Jacques Merrin uh, in Paris. And so it was that skill set that was recognized by, was it by Wilkins, who then invited her to uh, join the team at King's College as a faculty member? It was actually John Randall who invited her. John Randall had set up this uh, biophysics unit at King's. It was the only unit in the country. Uh, originally, she was actually invited to work on the structure of proteins. And that's probably what caused some of the um, problems later on and the, the challenges and the interactions that sort of soured between Wilkins and uh, Rosalind Franklin. Because he invited her initially to work uh, on proteins, John Randall did, and but then he redirected her. He realized that nucleic acids was where the game was, where the race was, where the, the big prize was. And he asked her to supervise a PhD student called Raymond Gosling. Uh, who had previously been under the supervision of Morris Wilkins. At the time, Morris Wilkins was away at a conference somewhere. Um, and so that really started this, you know, it wasn't clear, you know, was, was Gosling now to work with Franklin? Uh, was he to continue working with his original supervisor, Wilkins? And that really set that, that sort of misunderstanding. And really, I think it's unfortunately John Randall we have to blame for, for not making it clear. And some say maybe he did it deliberately so that the two of them will be working um, you know, in, in competition to try and uh, identify the structure of DNA. But that was obviously challenging for her. Um, she was obviously a female in an environment that was mostly male-dominated. Um, and you know that extra challenge of it being unclear as to who was meant to work on what uh, made it very difficult. And at the time, obviously, Cambridge, particularly with Francis Crick, they'd been working mostly on proteins as well. And in fact, an agreement had been made with the two labs that King's would concentrate mostly on DNA and um, Cambridge would concentrate on proteins and also RNA. So Jim Watson actually did some very good work on RNA viruses uh, 
them at that early stage. have done a beautiful job at painting the scene for this, but I guess King's College was also just even its physical amenities were separate for women and the rest of the researchers. Is it how how bad was it for somebody like Franklin, especially with you know she had, I I've always read that she had a very strong personality and that always didn't rub people well either. Yeah, I, I mean I think she did have a strong personality. A lot of the times when you're a scientist, you do have to have a strong personality and stick to your viewpoint in relation to you know the particular theories you're trying to prove. And certainly there were challenges in relation to separate areas later on in her career, not just at King's, but when she went to Birbeck, uh, there was also issues in relation to gender pay. So unfortunately, nothing has changed over the last 60 years. We still have issues in relation to women not getting sufficient pay for the work that they do in science and elsewhere. And so, so there were those challenges. I have to say Randall himself was not in any way um, discriminatory or anything like that. He actually encouraged uh, women, and there were, he also worked very closely with Elizabeth Hodgkin, who won the Nobel Prize uh, subsequently. Um, but there were still challenges overall with it, within that system, if you like. And I, I think partially, obviously, you know, um, personalities really dominated the situation, and it was probably difficult for with a lot of very strong personalities, including herself. Yeah, I think, but I, and I don't mean for that to sound negative when I say that she had a strong personality. I think to be a woman in science, even today, that really helps. And I could see how at the time, how that may have been something that those who were um, actively separating you know, women in science that they actually uh, probably found as something that was uh, create, you know, in their minds, creating the division. But she was surviving in a in a male dominated and highly biased environment, and that was probably an asset of hers there. So when we look at her relationships with others at Kings, how did she relate with other people like Wilkins and the others who were working on this project? Well, I think obviously, you know, the, the whole situation that Randall set up of essentially almost a competition between Wilkins and uh, Rosalind Franklin didn't help. And um, eventually they had to sort of almost sit down and decide, well, you work on one form of the DNA and I'll work on another form. And um, obviously it would, ma- it would made more sense if they'd been working together uh, they were both very bright people. Interesting, Wilkins actually has, has an Irish background. His father was Irish. He was actually born in New Zealand, but uh, his father and mother were both from County Tipperary in Ireland, in Nina, and they went off to New Zealand. He was born then three or four years after they arrived, and then they actually came back to Ireland. And in fact, they were going to stay in Ireland, but his father, who was a doctor, had better opportunities to... Um, uh, to actually uh, get get a job in London, and he actually did a, a, an M, a master's in public health in King. So we, we could have had Morris Wilkins working away in Ireland, actually trying to develop or identify the secret of life, but uh, he obviously moved to, to King's. Um, I, I think one of the other challenges was that, um, obviously, that uh, Gosling, Raymond Gosling had been Wilkins' PhD, a student. He was then transferred almost over to Rosalind Franklin. And that obviously created potential tensions as well. And, and obviously, particularly when they started producing these beautiful X-ray crystallography uh, photographs, which, which turned out to be the key to identifying the structure of DNA. And so what was happening over at Cambridge at the time? What, when we talk about the race, what were Watson and Crick doing at the time? Well, Watson and Crick were, were working away on, on they were they were big into t- in terms of developing structures. If you, if you look at it, and I maybe try, try and compare them 
Um, they were probably more theorists, so in terms of looking at theories of what the structure of DNA might be like, uh, whereas Franklin was much more of an experimentalist. She wanted to sit down and prove it. And so one of the things that Watson and Crick started doing, and, and particularly when they realized that Linus Pauling, who obviously had previously discovered the structure of proteins, they were worried he was also starting to look at developing the structure of DNA, uh, or you know, trying to identify the structure of DNA. So they were starting to build models uh, that would re re recapitulate different structures um, of DNA. Uh, particularly, they sort of got slightly worried when Pauling actually sort of earlier on, about a year and a half before the eventual structure of DNA was resolved and then published in Nature, he came out with a paper. However, they realized quite quickly that the structure he was proposing, which was a triple helical structure, uh, wasn't the correct structure. So that then allowed them then to say, okay, we, we still are in this race. We can keep going. Maybe a really important punchline in that race was something we refer to as Photograph 51. And what was Photograph 51 and how did that prove to really assist? Well, let's just start out. What was, what was Photograph 51? Photograph 51, the most beautiful, the most famous X-ray crystallography photograph in the world. So this was a photograph taken by Gosling and Franklin. It was one of a number of X-ray diffraction photographs they took of DNA. And this particular one, uh, which was iconic because it very clearly allowed you to look and see what the structure of DNA might be by using the information from this X-ray diffraction photographs. Um, Rosalind and uh, Franklin uh, showed it to um, uh, Morris Wilkins, but what you didn't realize was that then Wilkins shared the picture with both Watson and Crick. Um, also, a uh, second piece of information that isn't really known. So a lot of people you know, know about this idea that, you know, essentially uh, Wilkins showed the picture uh, to Watson and Crick without Franklin's knowledge. But also there had been a visit uh, by the MRC who were funding the biophysics research unit at King's and the previous year where different scientists, including Russell and Franklin, presented their work. And Max Perutz, who was one of the... Um, members of the committee who were on that visit it was at Cambridge and he also shared the report uh, from that committee with Watson and Crick so they had two pieces of information and um, neither of which not Rosalind Franklin knew they had which obviously gave them a huge advantage now you have to hand it to Watson he looked at the picture and he realized straight away what this meant and he then went back to Crick they then stopped making the model that they were making because they didn't have the right sort of structure in terms of how they were spacing it out. And, and based on both the MRC report, but also critically that X-ray crystallography photograph, Photo 51, they were able then to construct a double helical structure for DNA. They found this structure, and this was published shortly thereafter, and we'll talk about that when we come back on the next part of the Talking Biotech podcast. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Mark Lawler, following up on the article he wrote in The Conversation that was published online of it back in April of this year. Uh, this is the Talking Biotech podcast. We'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everybody. This is Kevin Fulton. Three years ago, I started an experiment, the Talking Biotech podcast. Now, I had experimented with podcasting and wanted to create content, but I didn't really need a spotlight. I didn't want people to listen 
and tell me that, okay, you have time for that stupid podcast, but you don't have time to review that grant proposal or serve on the committee or <laughs> shave the dog. So I did my first podcast, the, the Vern Blathard Fly and Power Hour with Vern Blathard. And, you know, we all know that didn't turn out so hot. But this week, three years ago, I was on the Joe Rogan Experience. It's hard to believe it was that long ago. I mean, Joe was super cool, and the podcast was well-received. And at the end, Joe told me that I needed to start a podcast. So I ditched that modulated Vern Blazek voice and started my own series, June 12, 2015. Now, since that time, I've been joined by the outstanding Paul Vincelli and a host of other, well, co-hosts. They're all awesome. But the real star of the show is the science and the scientists and the journalists and the ag professionals that share their stories. After three years and 130-some episodes, I'm really grateful for all the support and kindness, the 20,000 monthly downloads, and the great buzz we get in social media. It seriously is the high point of my week, and I, and I, I do the interviews and produce the episodes and see it go live, and there's nothing better on Saturday morning than to wake up and see that on the phone, that here it, it happened, and it's magic, and we're talking about science. We're creating a durable and useful resource. It, we're sharing science. We're changing hearts and minds. And someday, we're going to look back and see how far we've come. I think we see that already. Thank you for three great years, and thank you for your wonderful support. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast. And today we're talking with Dr. Mark Lawler, and we're discussing Rosalind Franklin and her role in the race to the discovery of structure of DNA, and maybe trying to add a little more context to an important uh, discussion historically. And so we're talking about how Rosalind Franklin's famous photograph 51 helped uh, Watson and Crick resolved the structure of DNA. And this was in May of 1952 that she took this image. And it was a year later that the structure was published. And can you tell us a little bit about that publication? So how much experimental work went into Watson and Crick's one-page <laughs> publication in Nature about the structure of DNA? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, a, a, a seminal moment. I mean, they walked into the Eagle Pub in Cambridge where they used to eat most days of the week. And they walked in and Crick said, we have discovered the secret of life. And so it was really a, a mind-bending or a mind-blowing experience in relation to everybody who was in the know in terms of you know, this race for the structure. And essentially, as I said before we broke off, really Watson and Crick, it was mostly using you know, the theoretical in terms of the structure. They didn't do many practical experiments to prove the structure. Uh, they present the structure. Obviously, at this stage, Rosalind Franklin knew that they'd seen the um, picture. Um, and also, there was actually a meeting between the two labs to agree that actually three papers would go into nature. So although we always talk about Watson and Crick's paper, uh, there was also a second paper by uh, Wilkins. And then there was also a third paper by uh, Rosalind Franklin and Raymond Gosling. And it was actually in the third paper that the picture, that iconic picture, was shown. Uh, a lot, lot, not a lot of people actually know that. They think it was just the one paper. Um, but I, I think what was telling was really that Watson and Crick didn't really acknowledge um, that the, the reason why they were able to construct that excellent, superb, beautiful-looking model of DNA was uh, the, the fact that they actually had access 
to that iconic picture and also that MRC report that I mentioned. It's really important, and I, it's kind of a glaring omission. They acknowledged Rosalind Franklin in their in their footnote, but they didn't talk about how it was her iconic image, that photograph 51, that really was the uh, kind of opening the door and saying, here is exactly what this is. And it, it, what is really interesting are those three papers, and I'll put a link to that on, on the podcast episode uh, online. And some people have actually, you know, much like you've done and much like we're doing today, have taken some steps to try to correct the record and talk about some of the other peripheral information. And it was Aaron Klug, who was a, was a, was a colleague, or actually it was a student of hers, I believe, but who, someone who had seen her notebooks and a partial manuscript that Rosalind Franklin had written. Um, and really does that suggest that she knew exactly what this double helical form was and that she was actually preparing publications on this uh, topic? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things about Rosalind was she was very precise. So she, whereas Watson and Crick were interested in, here's the structure. The first thing Rosalind did when she went down to Cambridge to see the structure, because obviously they had to make a very big molecular structure. I mean, if you see the iconic picture of Watson and Crick with the actual structure, like it's, you know, it's about 10 or 12 feet tall. Um, but one of the things she said, oh, yeah, it looks very nice, but, but can you prove it? So I, I think one of the things that maybe would have been slightly to her detriment, particularly when you're talking about being in a race to do something, is she was very precise. She wanted to get experimental information that proved that the you know the, the the structure was the correct structure, etc. But certainly, Aaron Klug, who who really um, was a superb champion of um, of uh, Rosalind, um, and as, as you say, Rosalind was um, his mentor. Uh, he found that a draft of the paper that had the potential for the helical structure of DNA, and she'd written it uh, or started to write it, and it was dated the 17th of March 1953. So that's fully before we're, we're talking about in relation to the the the, the, uh, the actual discovery and then the subsequent publications. So she certainly had you know, thought about it. I think you know. Watson probably was able to get over the hill quicker, maybe in terms of actually saying, looking at it and straight away realizing this is the key. She was, you know, certainly one who was more into the experimental part. Well, how do I prove it? But I think really, you know, it was the two of them together had different skill sets that together revealed the secret of life. I mean, I think what was particularly disappointing was that none of them, when they, you know, neither Watson, Crick or uh, Wilkins, uh, when they won the Nobel Prize, when they were given it in 1962, and none of them said anything really about uh, Franklin. And I think that was you know, particularly disappointing. Obviously, she'd passed away by that stage. And I think it would have been big of them if they'd actually made some more comment in relation to her contribution. I mean, you contrast that with Aaron Klug. I know Aaron worked with um, Rosalind, but when he received his Nobel Prize in, in 1982, he actually not only talked about his own work, but also highlighted her work and said, had her life not been cut tragically short, she might well have stood in this place on an earlier occasion. And I certainly believe if she'd lived, she would have. Interestingly, I don't think she would have received it for the structure of DNA because I think that's where the sort of old boys club and the King's College uh, Cambridge uh, sort of set came in. I think she actually would have won it for the work, the excellent work that she did after she left King's 
and went to uh, Burnell at the uh, at Burbank, and she, that's where she worked with Aaron Clug, and they did superb work on um, tobacco mosaic virus and a number of RNA viruses, and, and that was really seminal work that led to Aaron Clug getting his Nobel Prize in 1982. And, you know, you mentioned that she died early. What, what was the story and the circumstances around her death? Yeah, unfortunately, she developed ovarian cancer. Um, and obviously, at that time, you know, the ways in which we, we treated ovarian cancer were, were fairly basic. Um, initially, it looked like it might be working. But unfortunately, uh, really quickly, uh, she realized herself um, that she was not going to survive. And she was only 37 years of age when she died in, in, um, in 1958. I mean, it was really a tragedy um, because, you know, the amount of work, as I said earlier, she had done really and the quality of the papers. Like she didn't have a huge number of papers, but by God, the quality of those papers, they're all in the highest journals, Nature, published in Nature four or five times, you know, really quality journals. I mean, I think she, she packed in enough in that short life to have won at least one, if not two Nobel Prizes. And I, I know that you've probably seen her tombstone. And uh, do you know what it says on there about her contributions? And, and is it really kind of, a, again, underscore how her major contributions were really not appreciated? Well, well, it's interesting you should say that because I have a slightly different take on it. And it's because I have a little bit of inside information. So Rosalind actually contributed to what's actually written on her gravestone. Uh, just for your listeners, um, it, it has, um, you know, Rosalind Franklin, then it has, you know, dates, etc. scientists. And then what it says was, her research and discoveries on viruses remain of lasting benefit to mankind. And it's interesting because it actually echoes the wishes of Alfred Nobel when he said that scientific discoveries shall have conferred the greatest benefit on mankind when he actually set up the Nobel Prize itself. But yeah, it's, it's a sort of a sad graveyard that I've been in. it. It's in um, uh, the Wilsdon United Synagogue Jewish Cemetery in London. Uh, it's a fairly, you know, sort of basic, you know, it looks fine and it's you know, well-tended and that, but it, it's sort of a sad end. And um, But I, I just think, you know, as I said, I think unfortunately, you know, the reason why she didn't win the Nobel Prize, just for your listeners, was the Nobel Prize isn't given out posthumously. So unfortunately, she had passed away in 1958. Uh, the Nobel Prize wasn't given to Watson, Crick and Wilkins until uh, 1962. But I think, unfortunately, even that, if even if it had been the case that she was still alive, I think the three of them would still have got it. At that stage, she'd left uh, Cambridge and she'd gone to work with Bernal, uh, who actually, you know, he was he was a, a super supporter of her, uh, an Irishman again, also from County Tipperary, um, and he he was the one who actually wrote her obituary. And it, within his uh, obituary, he, he actually highlighted just how. You know, how wonderful um, the pictures that she took. He, he really was a, a great um, supporter of hers. Um, and um, it was one of the things that uh, I, I think was very clear that she, she showed that when she was in the right uh, environment, not only was she incredibly productive, but also she got on very well with people. So some people, you highlight, say, oh, she was difficult to work with. But if you look at her time in Paris, uh, her time in, Bur in Birkbeck College in in, uh, in London, and um, you know, she was really in her element in both those uh, institutions. 
And I think it's it's there that you really see you know how wonderful she was as a scientist, but also you know as a person as well. She interacted with people. She was actually quite fashionable as well. I mean, Jim Watson's description of her in in his bestseller uh, does not in any way do her justice, and, and people really were amazed at you know why he you know, seemed to suggest that she was this dowdy scientist. She actually was quite fashion conscious. Uh, she liked her fashion, particularly when she was in Paris. She loved being in Paris. So, um, you know, a lot of things that were said about her, you know, when you actually delve down deeper, as I did over the last year when I was sort of preparing both the uh, article in the conversation and also an article in the Irish Times highlighting sort of the Irish connections to the secret of life, um, you know, really sort of highlight that, you know, she was a yes. really interesting, fascinating probably challenging person. I'd say if you're in the room with her, she would have pretty soon worked out whether you actually knew your stuff or not. But, you know, that's what science is about. And, and you mentioned the Irish connection. And uh, there really seems to be a lot of interesting threads that touch on Ireland. And do you have any other ways to kind of expand on that? Yeah, well, I mean, it's amazing, actually, because it goes back, it goes back over a decade before the whole uh, discovery of the secret of life. Um, and it actually goes back to the fact that... Um, Ernest Schrödinger, um, who was actually a Nobel Prize winner, uh, was invited to Ireland by our Prime Minister at the time, Eamon de Valera, and he invited him to set up an Institute of Advanced Studies in Dublin, which was amazing. Now, Dublin was not a hotbed of science at the time, although historically it had been very much in relation to medicine. So Erwin Schrödinger came over, and uh, so he was born in Vienna, the Austrian Nobel laureate, came over, stayed in Ireland for approximately, I would have said, 30 years, something like that. But the critical thing they did was that when he came, he actually um, posed a fundamental question called, what is life? It was a series of public lectures that he gave. And then subsequent to that, he then wrote a book that actually captured these lectures. And um, actually, um, really interestingly, then, you know, was looking to see how could you apply chemistry and physics to biological processes. And he even made some suggestions as to how genetic information could be, could be contained within a molecule. So this in, series of, of lectures that he gave that were then published in a book was actually published by Cambridge University Press. And the interesting thing is that Jim Watson read it. Uh, and straight away, it polarized his life towards finding the secret of the gene. Francis Crick read it. Uh, Morris Wilkins read it. At the time, Morris Wilkins was um, actually working on the Manhattan Project. He read this and said, I'm in the wrong field. I need to get into biophysics. And so came back to King's and started working on that. And um, so the influence that this book had in terms of actually driving this idea in terms of discovering the secret of life all came from the Dublin Institute for Advanced Sciences, would you believe? There's all the, these common ties that kind of go back to, to Dublin, Ireland, which is really an interesting thread that I don't think anyone's ever pointed out. So what are some of the take-home messages here? And how can we all uh, maybe better memorialize uh, Dr. Franklin in, in, in our conversations and in our classes? Um, I, I think you know, the, the, the lesson to learn is, unfortunately, at that time, um, you know, she was in a challenging environment, um, and really, you know, I, I think it has to be emphasized that, you know, certain people didn't behave very well. I think Randall in the whole thing of maybe making the two of them enemies of each other when probably if they'd worked together as friends, 
then Wilkins might have not gone and you know, shown the um, photograph 51 to Watson and Crick. He might have said, well, let's work together to actually develop this. I think the other thing is that, um, you know, it seemed to be then that, you know, although she was the one who discovered the actual, you know, the, or took the picture with Raymond Gosling that you know, was really that key piece, she was the one who was moved out of King's. And in fact, she was told, not only was she moved out of King's, she was told by Randall she couldn't work on DNA anymore. So, I mean, imagine, you know, so you're, 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 you're working on DNA and you're being told by somebody who's just giving you the boot, essentially, that <laughs> now you can't work on DNA anymore. Uh, to be fair to her, and um, when she went to Bernal, there was another Irishman, as I said, who was probably the father of crystallography. He loved her. He thought she was brilliant. And it was he who then encouraged her to, to work on RNA viruses. And, you know, the work that she did on RNA viruses that then was continued by Aaron Klug in her memory led to a second Nobel Prize. So, Really, you've got somebody who, who didn't win a Nobel Prize at all, who probably pr- provided the research uh, that led to two Nobel Prizes, and um, neither of which she won. But I think she would have won with Klug if she'd still been alive. Uh, I think she would have been about 68 at the time or 64, something like that. Um, and obviously, he, he, he very much, you know, as, he, as I say, he stood up on the Nobel platform and said, you know, she might well have stood on this place on an earlier occasion if she'd lived. Um, I, I think one of the things we need to learn, you know, in, in, in the current context is that, you know, for, for women in science, it's still very difficult. And I think Rosalind Franklin should be held up as somebody who uh, uh, women scientists should aspire to in relation to her doggedness, her determinedness. Uh, one of the things I, I did recently as part of uh, Athena Swan, which is an equality and diversity initiative that we have in Queens, is actually to inaugurate a Rosalind Franklin lecture. And we, we've done it specifically to actually address these issues in relation to equality, diversity. Um, and, and next year, what we'll do is we'll do that with some of our, our younger students as well. So, so I think, you know, looking at her memory, making sure that she is remembered, remembered for the right things, her, her contribution properly recognized, which I think has only happened laterally. And as you said, I think, you know, some people still aren't really aware of the details and hopefully this podcast will help. Um, and, and then really, you know, celebrating that and using that as role models for, for young scientists going forward. Oh, that's beautiful. If people wanted to know more about this, are there any books that you could recommend about the Rosalind Franklin story? Or do you think it'll ever be made into a full length motion picture? It actually was, but it was back a good while ago. I've been trying to get a copy of it or a print of it or a video, but I, I haven't been successful so far. Uh, cer- certainly, Brendan Magluff's book on Rosalind Franklin is really worthwhile, the, the Dark Lady of DNA. So I would certainly encourage people who want to read more about that. Um, obviously, you have the conversation linked to the podcast and also uh, the article. Of, for those of you from, of an Irish distraction, um, the uh, article in the Irish Times, which I'll, I'll send a link on, um, will we'll cover um, you know, the, the different Irish connections uh, to the secret of life. Um, but uh, probably Brenda Marcus one is the, the best one that I would say. Certainly, it, it's been, it was very informative. Well, Dr. Mark Lawler, thank you so much for your time on this really important issue. And it really makes me happy to know that we'll be able to share this story with more people and really increase the penetration of your conversation article and make more people aware about this really important person who made such big contributions to science. Thank you so much for your time. Gavin, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. 
And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Listen every week and, of course, write a review on iTunes, share with friends, and most of all, remember that we stand on the shoulders of giants and uh, share the story of Dr. Rosalind Franklin. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.